Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. Thank you so much. All God's people said? Amen. We were in 1998, went to Africa in our first uh, time together. Our brother Kennedy got up and said, Hallelujah! And everybody said, Amen. Thank you. We're going to invite the children to be dismissed. The children's choir, they're anxious to go and uh, join. They're going to continue to sing and worship and learn together. And we pray God's blessing on you as you continue to do so. With the music and the songs that we have... Uh, and scriptures we've just shared in this morning. Uh, we're going to start before prayer today. We'll start at the end. We are sharing in a series of encounters with God. But Stephen, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Let's pray together. Father, as we open your word, we pray your blessing on your word to our hearts as we continue to worship you as we have been already, Lord, engaged with your word this morning. Be with our children, be with those in our early childhood classes. Bless them as they continue to learn from your word, to share, to worship together. May they too share in the joy of the Lord this Resurrection Sunday, first day of the week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Stephen's encounter with God. But well, we need to go back a little bit to kind of get the history of this encounter. And we I wish we had time, but I'm going to give you an assignment. I would like to encourage you, if you would take some time to read all of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7 of the book of Acts. I think it would help as we put these pieces uh, together, if you would take a few minutes to do that. But just to summarize, in the sixth chapter we find that there is, in the early church in Jerusalem, this early Jewish uh, Christian fellowship, there an issue, a division has uh, come up over how the uh, the means of, of food and so forth were being distributed between the, the Hebrew, uh, the, Ju- the Judean Hebrew, and the the Hebrews, the Jews from the more the Gentile world, the Hellenistic world. There was sort of a division and some controversy. And so they needed to solve this. And the apostles and Peter with the lead said, you know, we've been called to to preach and to pray and we need to have help with this. And so they appointed seven deacons, if you will, seven servers who they would say specifically, uh, you take care and you'll notice here, in, uh, in the middle of this section here, in verse 3, Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over to them, and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And so they do this, and you notice the context has to do with what they call waiting tables. But I want to remind you, as we'll see, and, and you get the list of the names of the, of the men here, and they and they took this over, and you notice verse seven. The result is the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and also a large number of priests. Notice that a large number of Jewish priests also became obedient to the faith. Now, one of those servers, one of those deacons, if you will, 
was a man named Stephen. You'll notice it says here, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders, miraculous signs among the people. So I want to just remind you that, you know, sometimes we sort of segregate people into gifting and say, well, this is your gifting, this is your gifting, this is your gifting. These seven who were gifted in this administration were also gifted in preaching and in evangelism. And we see this multiplicity of gifts that is given to the body, to the church today, the body of Christ. In this context, Stephen, who was a deacon for serving, also, you'll notice in verse 8, he was full of God's grace, power, did great wonders, miraculous signs among the people. He was one who was noted that God was mighty at work in his life. He was doing signs and wonders as well as waiting tables, if you will, and helping serve the widows in Jerusalem. And because of that, because he was so mighty and so used by God, and the Holy Spirit was so much upon him, you'll notice what happened. The opposition, verse 9, arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and it gives some of the areas that they were from. This was probably a, a, a synagogue in Jerusalem that had its history of former slaves who had been freed, who came from the various Hellenistic Gentile areas of the world. You'll notice the locations there are mentioned. It's possible this was the synagogue that Saul of Tarsus was part of, because he was a Hellenistic Jew. And uh, even though he was a, a Roman citizen, this synagogue became well known uh, in Jerusalem. And you'll see here that they began to um, they, they could not, they began to argue with Stephen in verse 10, but they, they, they could not stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. So they gathered some people to come and to speak against him, but they persuaded them to bring this accusation. Here's the accusation, verse 11. They secretly persuaded some men to say, number one, we have heard Stephen speaking words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. And so they, they, they define this even more in verse 13. They produce false witnesses. And they testified before the Sanhedrin, before the leaders of Israel. This fellow never stopped speaking against, notice, the holy place, that is the temple, and against the Mosaic law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the law, change the customs Moses had down to us. And so they all sat down to with these charges, these charges in the front of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Israel, they sat down with Stephen and said, what's your defense? Here's the charges against you. We have heard that this said that you are against and that along with Jesus, you are going to destroy this temple, this holy place, and you are going to destroy our holy law and change it. What is your defense? I want you to notice in the very end of chapter 6 is Stephen is going to, to address this. His face was like the face of an angel. The, the Greek here suggests his face was, was radiant. Now, I mean, I don't know any other reason to take that literally. It's, it's, there was something about Stephen that was radiant about his face, which should have been an indication with them that the Holy Spirit was upon him and something special God was doing through him. His face was radiant. And they said, Brother, are these charges true? Now, I would like to, I wish we could just read through this entire chapter, but you'll notice it's a rather long chapter. Look at chapter 7, and um, I've got 1, 2, 
over three and a half pages in my Bible, uh, to verse 59, all the way to the end of this chapter. It's a long chapter. And he is going to give his defense. Now, when you read this, and if you've ever read this chapter in your Bible reading, that's why I encourage you to take some time to read it, what you basically have here, it appears, is a history of the Old Testament. From going back from Abraham to the time of David and Solomon and then the prophets. And it's, it's such, it's such a long history. In fact, it's been criticized by some, uh, people outside of, you know, meaning looking at scripture saying this is really kind of a dull message. I mean, what's the point of this? He just, what's, what's his, what's his defense? He just goes through the whole history basically of the patriarchs and of Joseph and of Moses and of David and Solomon. What, what is his point? What's his point in this? Well, I know that I know I've got at least a handful of lawyers here in the audience today, and I think you might especially appreciate this. If you read this carefully, you will find that Stephen gives a very eloquent legal defense against these two accusations that he is being charged with, which would be heresy. Uh, if you know how the story ends, he is killed. He becomes the first martyr of the Christian faith, if you will. Um, he is stoned. He is killed for these charges. These are serious charges. And, uh, and, and it's a serious situation. And he gives a very eloquent defense. And I want to point this out to you. And, I'm, and I have to do this without reading the whole chapter to you. So I'm a little bit of a disadvantage. That's why I'd like you to take some time to read this chapter. How is he going to defend himself? That in the tradition of Jesus Christ, that the accusation, he is against this place, the temple. In fact, we have heard it said they are going to destroy it. And he is planning to change and destroy the Mosaic law. What is his response? Well, as you read through this, just in summary, I'm going to give you some of the highlights here. He begins with the patriarch Abraham. And it begins in verse 2, his defense. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Listen to my defense. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, and I want you to notice, while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. And so he tells them how he left, he left his home in Mesopotamia, Ur of the Chaldees, modern day Iraq, traveled to Fertile Crescent up north to Haran, came down into Canaan. We sang, the, the, the choir sang that beautiful song, the, the language of Canaan, the words of Canaan. He comes down in this land, and Peter, I mean, uh, Stephen, summarizes his life, that he comes into this land, and even though God promises him, this is going to be your land for your descendants, I am giving you this land, yet while he is alive, he owns none of it. He, he's a pilgrim. He travels throughout the land. He, he ends up, they end up buying a piece of property to bury their family at Hebron. But he says, you, you are gonna, your, your people, in fact, are gonna be, are gonna be strangers in a foreign country for four centuries. And then they will return. But you will be a pilgrim in this land. He ends up in verse 8 by saying, Abraham became the father of Isaac, circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, 
Jacob became the father of the twelve the patriarchs. And because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. I want you to notice these connections. We're talking about places. Abraham was called by God in Mesopotamia to Haran. And while he was a pilgrim and never settled down in Canaan, his descendant, eventually Joseph, a son of the patriarch, of one of the twelve of Jacob, goes into Egypt. And you know the story of Joseph as he rises to administrative lead in Egypt. In verse 11, a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing suffering. And so Jacob goes, he reminds them how Jacob goes down into Egypt. And he, and he goes down there, and, and in verse 16, their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb of Abraham. Isaac dies, or Jacob dies in, in Egypt, and they have to bring his body back. He dies in a foreign place, and they are there for 400 years in the land of Egypt. And then verse 17, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, a number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Another king who, did knew, who knew not nothing about Joseph became ruler. And then he begins the story of Moses. And in verse 20, at that time, Moses was born. He was no ordinary child. And he tells us the story of Moses in verse 22, how he, he was educated in the wisdom of the Egyptians. Verse 23, when he was 40 years old, he, he decides to help his fellow Israelites. They are in Egypt. This whole story takes place in Egypt. And then in verse 30, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in Mount Sinai, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the Sinai Peninsula, is where God appears to him. And notice verse 33, he reminds him, the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. Abraham, Joseph, Moses. And then finally, we come to the story of our forefathers, verse 44, had the tabernacle, the testimony with them in the desert. It has been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern that he had seen. And then we, at the end of verse 45, it remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place. Verse 47, it was Solomon who built the first temple. But, of all things he could have said about the temple that Solomon built, notice what he says. He says, however, verse 48, the most holy does not live in houses made by man, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build me, says the Lord? Or will, where will my resting place be? Listen, he has just answered the charge against him that this new sect of Judaism, these new followers of Jesus Christ, are suggesting something horrible because of the, the temple, that there's something more than just the temple where God is. The temple has become the, has become the symbol to Israel of God's permanence, of God's blessing. And if the temple is gone, what happens to God's blessing? What happens to them as a people? It's the, the temple. What's his argument? His argument, by going back to Abraham, to Isaac and, and, and to Joseph, and to Moses, is to remind them 
God's holy place has always been where God's holy people are. God has never been restricted to a place. All of our forefathers, all of our story, it took place in Mesopotamia, it took place in Haran, it took place in Egypt, it took place in Midian, it took place in the Sinai Desert, it took place wandering in Canaan. God is not restricted to a place. We are not teaching heresy. But we as believers in Jesus Christ are telling you that something new has happened. The Messiah has come and God is not restricted to a place. Yes, Jesus did say. Remember they asked him. Well, Jesus one time he said, tear down this temple in three days I will rebuild it. They thought he was talking about Herod's temple that was built. He was talking about his body. But he did predict. He did predict in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew, for example, that not one stone will be left upon another. This temple is going to be destroyed. Jesus taught this. The apostles knew this. And they are being persecuted. And they are being accused of teaching heresy. And Stephen says, this is not heresy. God is not restricted. And in fact, when Solomon dedicated this temple, he himself said, we know this does not contain you. You do not live here. This is a meeting place for us. God is doing something new. The Messiah has come and we are offering this message to you. God's holy presence has always been where God's holy people are called. That's his defense. And his second defense, they are accusing him of throwing away the Mosaic law and the traditions of the fathers. And you know Jesus encountered this. How many times did they say, you are you are breaking the law. Why, why would you heal a man in the synagogue on the Sabbath? Why would you do these things? And the Lord Jesus Christ confronted them about the traditions of the elders. And he says, you, you, you tithe mint and cumin. cumin. You know what those are? What mint and cumin? Spices. Cumin. It's a spice. You'll, you'll, you'll measure out a tenth of a pile of cumin and say, here's our legal tithe. And while you do this, you completely forget about the big issues of, of righteousness and justice, of caring for those in the community. And as the prophet said, you take advantage and you rob and you treat the widows and the, and the, and the fatherless as nothing. You completely deny these things, but you'll tithe mint and cumin. And the Lord challenged him. Yes, he did challenge him. And Stephen's defense is this. You will notice. Look at verse 33. Talking about Moses. Uh, verse 27. Look at verse 27. When he went to, re when Moses thought the people would understand he was going to help liberate them, look what it says. They said to Moses, Who made you ruler and judge over us? They rejected him. And Moses fled for his life. They rejected him. Verse 35. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? Verse 39. But our fathers refused. They rejected him. They refused to obey him. And in place... They rejected him and their hearts turned back to Egypt. Make us a golden calf, they said. And finally, what is his argument? You're accusing us of changing the Mosaic law, but those of you that sit in Moses' seat 
And friends, there is something about this. Remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said? He said, the Lord Jesus Christ actually told people, He said, you must respect those who sit in Moses' seat, but don't live like they do. Now that's really odd, isn't it? If I said to you, listen, at our church, we want you to respect our elders, but don't live like them. Well, your response will be, it's time for new elders, right? And pastors. But he said that. There is something about the authority of those who sat in Moses' seat, those who are in that line of the priesthood and the tribal leaders of Israel that sat in Moses' seat. There was something about this that was important. And Jesus says, but, but, but don't, don't follow them, but you must respect them. Stephen reminds them that they have a history of rejecting God's prophets. You telling us we are rejecting the law? Look at our story. Our leaders rejected the law. They rejected Moses. They rejected and rejected and rejected. And in fact, finally, look what he says, verse 51. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute it? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but you have not obeyed it. This is, this is not the way to win friends and influence the Sanhedrin. Although don't forget, we did read many priests have come to Christ. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were followers of Christ. But he dared to turn it back on them. We have heard this man is speaking against the holy place. Stephen says, no, the holy place is where God's holy people are. Something different is happening. Something is being offered. We have been talking about the coming kingdom, the coming Messiah. He came. This man is talking about destroying the Mosaic law. Stephen changes it from our ancestors to your ancestors and says, no, you are following your ancestors who always rejected Moses. You rejected, we saw this in the prophets. You see it throughout the Old Testament that you try to practice the law like everything's fine, but you reject the heart and soul of it to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. You're the ones who have rejected it. And finally, he comes and brings it together by saying, you remember Moses said, in Deuteronomy 18, there will be another prophet who will come. Listen to him. He came, and you didn't listen, and you've killed him. You've murdered the author of life. In verse 40, 54, when they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Now, now again, I want to remind you, that I don't think I have to, but, you know, we are not talking about the Jews, right? All of the believers are Jews at this point, as far as we can tell. As Christ was, and the apostles were, and as Peter was, and as Stephen was. We are talking about a leadership element, a particular group who are refusing and who are, who are, who are resisting what God is doing while thousands of Jews are coming to Christ for salvation and faith. 
and their lives are changing. But they heard this, this group of leaders who sat in Moses' seat, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth. And this is all that to say, this is our encounter with God. It's in that context that Peter, that Stephen looks up while they're, while they're furious at him for daring to accuse them of that. He looks up to heaven and you notice he says, I saw the glory of God. Look at, I see it. I see the glory of God. He doesn't say, he knows he doesn't say, I see God. And we talk about, we talk about near death experiences. You've all heard about people who've had near death experiences. I, I'm no expert on that. I, I can't really speak to that. But this is someone who's near death. And he looks up and he says, I see the glory of God. I see the radiance, the beauty. No man will see God live and, and he's about to die. But he looks up and he sees the glory of God. He's, he's telling them, in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way that a, a Jewish leader would say it, I, I see God. I see the glory of God. And look, look what else I see. I see Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. We've been singing about that this morning. We've been singing about that. And Stephen says, I'm, I'm looking at it. They're all yelling. They're all angry. They want to do away with them. And he says, look at I, I see the glory of God and I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Could, they, could, could anyone not connect this when, in, in Luke and in Mark and the Gospels when, they, when Jesus came before the Sanhedrin? Remember what they asked him? They said, we have heard you say you're going to destroy this temple. We have heard you say that you are the Son of God. Are you the Son of God? What did Jesus say? Yes. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Father and coming in glory. And they said, that's it. We've heard enough. We've heard enough. Now it is interesting, when Stephen sees Jesus, he is standing, not sitting. Now we could, we could talk a lot about this, I'm not gonna go into the different, there are different opinions on, is it standing in judgment? Why is he standing and not sitting? Or is he standing in defense as Peter's, as Stephen's advocate? As Stephen says, there, he is my advocate, he is standing up in my defense with the judge, the glory of God, I see him standing. And this is Stephen's encounter with God. He actually saw it. He didn't say, I'm dreaming it. He didn't fall asleep and think about it. He, he looked up the heavens. The heavens opened. And what was always there was there. He could just see it now. And Jesus is standing at the right hand of the glory of God. And look at, they covered their ears. And just as they did with the Lord Jesus Christ, they yelled at the top of their voices. And they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. They did it completely against Jewish law. There's a whole section in the Jewish Mishnah that explains how somebody would be stoned, even though the Romans would not allow them to practice capital punishment without permission. There was a whole procedure for how you legally took carry this out. This is not it. This is a mob scene. Things are out of control. They drag him out of the city and they are stoning him. And while they are doing this, I think they are taking their clothes off in order to do this and lay them at the feet 
of a man named Saul, who was in charge of this stoning. Verse 59. While they were stoning him, does this sound familiar? Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You ever heard that before? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There is so much connection with this first martyr who suffered for the Lord Jesus Christ and our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, who is standing at God's right hand, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees as, he's being, as he is being stoned, as he is being killed and murdered, brutally, brutally, as this is happening, he cries out, Lord, do not hold this against them. And he fell asleep. Does that sound familiar? We're the Lord Jesus Christ from the cross of Calvary. Father, what? Forgive them. They know not what they do. And Stephen's encounter with God on earth ended there. But he was received in the glory. An encounter with God. A wonderful legal defense. Brilliant. But it didn't matter. Three takeaways for you today. Three takeaways for you today. Three takeaways for me. I always have to speak to myself first. And I figure if I need it, you need it too. Okay? First of all, friends, let's never forget. God's holy place is always where His people are. We, we come here today on the first day of the week, Resurrection Sunday. We come here to be refreshed, to worship, to share each other's burdens, to open God's Word, to teach our children and young people. We come here today to church. To church. But we gather so we can scatter. And where we go this week is where God's place is. God's place this week will be all over Puget Sound. It will be in your apartment house. The room you rent. The house you live in. The office you work in. The work site you're working at. The road you're driving on. Let's never disconnect what we do here and who we are here with who we are when we leave here. That was a huge mistake. Those who sat in Moses' seat, everything was so focused on that temple and God's guarantee and God's presence. Jesus wept over that temple and says, your house is already left empty. It's already empty. And I'm telling you, not one stone will be left upon another. Then what will you have? God's holy presence is where God's holy people are. Secondly, God's word is alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. It should never become an academic legal document. So if somebody comes in the synagogue and heals on the Sabbath, that you would say, what? You're breaking the law. 
Jesus says, breaking the law, if your animal fell in the hole, wouldn't you get him out of that hole on the Sabbath? You tithe mint and coming, but, but, but you, you, neglect, you neglect righteousness and justice and compassion and mercy. Friends, let's never forget. This is God's living word. It is not a legal document. Yes, it helps us make good choices. This is God's living word. May we never fall into the trap as those who sat in Moses' seat during that time where the legality and the legalism takes place over the heart and soul that Jesus reminded them the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. The rest all fits together into that. Third takeaway for us today, for me. What does an encounter with God produce in our lives? The Lord Jesus Christ, the cross of Calvary, Father, forgive them. The Apostle Paul, this Saul who was in charge of this brutal stoning, when he came to salvation, when he wrote the book of Romans to the church at Rome and says this, this, this man who, who also would give his life for the Lord. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? This man who, who t- told us about the joy of the Christian life. But I have this horrible, unceasing pain in my heart. Why? For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off for Christ. Why? For the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul's encounter with God. What did it produce? It produced a heart that was breaking to forgive and to see others come to Christ. And isn't it amazing as Stephen, the first martyr, as he is actually being pelted with big rocks and being brutally killed. What does this encounter with God produce in his heart? Father, forgive them. Please, forgive them. Bring them to yourself. So friends, I suggest to you this. An encounter with God, however it is in our lives, the result should be an amazing compassion, not anger and hatred, not trying to get back, not trying to make sure that they get what's coming to them. But it should be compassion. Father, forgive them. Bring them to yourself. This is what an encounter for God does in our lives. May we never be isolated that God is only in one place. May God's word never become just another legal document to study. But may our hearts be open to the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, bring them to yourself.
Let's close our service with our final song this morning. Thank you for leading in worship. Oh, it's a great song we're going to sing together. They're all good. This is great. <laughs> Amen. Thank you so much. Let's bow our heads in prayer as we leave today. Our Heavenly Father, this morning we have sung and we have read Scripture and we've looked into Your Word and we have focused on the vision of You, high and lifted up. High and lifted up. Holy, holy, holy. We have just sung, Be Thou My Vision. Father, it's, it's not hard. We think back what Moses told his people. Don't say that this is something that is far beyond us, but it is God's Word. It's in your heart. It's in your heart. And Lord, I pray that as we seek and look, as you are our vision, that we place in our heart your love, your compassion, your tenderness and kindness. And that, Lord, our hearts would always be open to joyfully sharing the good news of freedom in Jesus Christ and freedom from the bondage of sin and freedom to be part of your family and to worship you and to live for you. Lord, we love you. Oh, how we love you, even though, Lord, we don't always live that way. We love you. We thank you for your love for us. And we pray, pray your blessing on us and our children as we leave this place today. May you always be our vision. In Christ our Savior's name, all God's people can pray together. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen.